Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Tales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at VigorBranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Forktails a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by my friend Jonathan Weddington, he's the CEO of Shuck and Shack. If you don't know what Shuck and Shack is, you're about to find out. But before we hop into that, Jonathan, say hello and give everyone a little bit of a backstory. Sure, Joseph, thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. I also appreciate that you go by your full name as well. So everyone likes to cut it short. But uh, no, my mom wouldn't be too pleased with that. So I also go by my (laughs) full name. Um, Yeah, nonetheless, thanks for having me on. Backstory for us, we're a uh, my my thirty second, even five second elevator pitch, so to speak, is if you like cold beer and you like raw oysters, you're gonna like us just fine. Um, <laughs> so that's a quick story of what our brand is. Certainly, we've built it into more than that over the last fifteen years. We opened our first location in 07, so November of 07, so almost fifteen years running at this point. Started franchising in two thousand fourteen, so almost eight years deep in the franchising program. Actually, eight years deep this week in the franchising mm-hmm. program. So, so pretty cool there. Um, but basically, backstory is we we found uh, we found a niche. Uh, our first location was in Carolina Beach, North Carolina. If you've never, you've probably never been there. And that's I've been totally there, weird. vacation there uh, once or twice. Okay. Again. Yeah. So yeah, you know, cool little sleepy beach town. And certainly in 2007, it was a lot different than it was than it is now, rather. And the founders, I'm not a founder of the brand. Matt and Sean, uh, Matt Pickin and Sean Cook founded the brand, and there was no oyster bar there. Mm-hmm. And you know, several other kind of Calabash style seafood. And what I mean by that is you know, fried seafood piled really high. Uh, you, you taste the grease before you taste the shrimp. And so <laughs> what, what we wanted to bring was a little more steamed style. So steamed style, East Coast. Think about my my favorite story of, of what I associate Shuck and Shack with is my family didn't do a lot of beach vacationing. Um, but mm-hmm. when we did, it was the whole family. And my mom had seven brothers and sisters. So like the whole family. So there was quite literally 50 cousins that would show up to this one beach house meant for, you know, 12 or 15 people. Shuck and Shack is that experience. It's an authentic coastal experience where, you know, I'm under the house. Uh, my, my uncle Larry's drinking a Budweiser and he's just poured seafood out on, on a uh, newspaper that's on a picnic table and everybody's kind of walking around. You know, I'm a chubby little kid. I got my shirt off. <laughs> We're just kind of picking at the table and eating things. And it's a very familiar experience. Um, that's what Shug and Shack is all about. We're built on authenticity. We're built on great seafood, obviously, but we're far more about the experience. And, and we want to take you to that experience when you walk into our restaurants. So that's yeah. who we are. That's a little bit of a backstory. Yeah, that's, that's, it's amazing. Like the, those memories, um, I still crave it. So I was born in central Pennsylvania, just north of Chesapeake. So our seafood was crab feasts. Same thing. You throw down the newspaper, you dump the bushel of crabs the whole way down the line. And, you know, when I 
when I got of age, of course, the beer was involved. But before that, right. it was soda. You know, um, right. I'm a soda person. I don't call it pop. Um, <laughs> so yeah. we would drink soda and I'd clean the crabs. Yeah. And I learned how to clean, clean crabs like fully uh-huh. from leg to the, the body part. Um, I think when I was like 10, I was doing it myself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just with a butter knife, just getting after it. Um, and there's something really communal about that and wonderful. And, and I love that Shug and Shack is, is, is reclaiming it in, in its own way. So you started at Shug and Shack over eight years ago, and uh, obviously you're now CEO. So that's an awesome journey. Uh, tell me more about that journey. What was it like? What was the secret to progressing through the ranks? Yeah, it's been a you know to to quote the famous quote. It's kind of been a strange journey for me. I, um, you know, if I was around when Shug and Shack started in 2007. Uh, one of the founders of Shug and Shack, Sean, he had another business two doors down, and um, he actually. I responded, believe it or not, the reason I am with Shuck and Shack is because of Craigslist, as odd as that sounds. <laughs> I love it. Um, I mean, it's absolutely bizarre how all of these things culminated into, into I can see my life, my career journey, going back to quite literally responding to a Craigslist ad for a kayak guide. That's how it started for me. <laughs> and so Sean ran a, a um, rental business, still runs it. Uh, and they did kayak tours and all of those things. And I'd spent a lot of time in the water, very comfortable in the water, done a lot of kayaking, a lot of paddling on the Southern coast of North Carolina, done, you know, previously some whitewater um, guiding and things like that, or at least participating. And so I thought, Hey, I'm living at the beach during the summer. I, I just broken my lease on my apartment. I live out of my Jeep. And that that's literally what I did. I had a pallet in my Jeep and a three bin uh, plastic drawer set in the back of my Jeep. That's where I kept all of my possessions. Wow. And I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to kayak. I'm going to be a kayak guide for the summer. So I responded to a Craigslist ad and, um, Sean emailed me right back. We were on the phone five minutes later. We met the next morning. I, I took him on a tour. Um, which was essentially the interview process. And then a couple days later, he called me back and said, man, I, I don't really know you from Adam, but you seem like a trustworthy guy. And uh, do you want to run my shop for me this summer? He said, I got a lot going on. I'm building a restaurant. And I said, yeah, sure, man. Of course, I'll run your shop for you this summer. And so the rest is history. There's a circuitous mm-hmm out to it. But I was at the time I would just finished undergrad. I was taking a year off and getting ready to go to grad school. And so I worked for Sean another three summers down there paying for grad school. And then as I, as I progressed and, and I saw Shuck and Shack open and in November of 2007, and then that first summer they were open, which would have been summer of 2008, there was just something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even myself as, as working two doors down, you'd walk in and you just feel welcome. Now the shop we worked at didn't have air conditioning. So I tried to walk in as much as possible. And so I would walk in and, and the bartenders would always say, Hey, and they knew my name after just a couple of visits and they give me water and I'd use the restroom and, you know, I'd order lunch from there. And I just, I liked hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um, and immediately it became one of those spots that's familiar. It's just familiar, regardless of how many times you go in, you know, it could be your first visit and it feels familiar to you. There's something very genuine about it. And I think part of that from a founder's perspective, knowing the founders really well, was that they didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Sometimes they didn't try to overcomplicate things. You know, they didn't give spiels to uh, the bartenders that you had to say while you came in. They didn't give upselling <laughs> technique to bartenders or servers or whomever. They just wanted people to hang out. And so First, they developed the bar crowd, and then people started realizing, hey, this place has really good food. 
So it kind of started as a dive bar and that served excellent food. And I started noticing it grow and grow and grow. And by the third summer I was working down there, I mean, there was just lines out the door all the time. Mm. And so I finished grad school. I went off into a big boy job wearing a suit and tie every day and spent six months there, realized I hated it um, and wanted to get back into the customer service um, side of things. So myself and, and Sean opened another business, another bar that we ran for two years. And then they were talking about franchising. By this time, they had opened a second location, which I helped them build and started talking about a third location in 2013-ish. And then called me in February of 2014 and said, hey, we're thinking about franchising. We don't know where you fit, but we think you fit. Would mm -hmm. you consider it? And in the position that I was in and my, and my other employer, I was really good at my job, but I was replaceable. And I wanted to I wanted to go into business. Um, I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. I'd started several businesses on my own. And um, I wanted to go somewhere where I was valued. I could help build a brand. I could bring some of my, you know, limited expertise into it. And, and so that's what I did. I uh, joined the team officially in July of 2014. And I am not kidding one bit when I say I slept on Matt's couch, who's the other co-founder. I slept on his couch um, for almost a year. Um, uh, because you know, when you're starting any business, you just don't know if it's going to work. That's right. And we knew that we had a great concept. It was just about how can we repeat this, which is the essence of franchising, right? You've got a great concept, but how can you make it repeatable? So we spent that whole year, uh, I slept on his couch. We got a few units opened and it took off and it's been very successful. And so I was promoted to CEO in November of 14. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the rest is pretty much history. I love that. Let's talk about the concept a little bit. So, um, you know, oysters are the mainstay, they're the, the, the flagship product, um, but that is a very niche product and it, and it can be quite divisive. Like you either love it or you hate it. And admittedly, I did not like oysters up until about three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't get over the consistency, but most of it was just me being, you know, hesitant for no reason whatsoever, because visually they don't look great. Um, how how has Shuck and Shack tackled the challenge of finding enough folks to buy into the oyster niche? Sure. So oysters are are a big part of our business, obviously. I think though, from a ten thousand foot view, and, and just looking at not just us being an oyster place inside the four walls, but we're selling we're essentially selling and promoting an entire experience. So oysters are a big thing. Shrimp is a huge thing. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we serve wild called American shrimp. It comes from Gulf waters, you know, and it just tastes better. And so what we're doing is we're sourcing products that go into our restaurant that are really high integrity, that tastes better, come straight out of the water into the steamer, onto the plate. And so to answer your question, it is a little bit of a niche, um, but we serve a little bit more than oysters. That being said, we've kind of been at this right place, right time moment. Oysters have become extremely popular culinarily, especially in the past five years. Mm -hmm. um, you see um, a lot of national publications, a lot of places are adding oysters to their menu or doing them on limited time offerings or things like that. And so for us, we view uh, we view seafood as the way of the future. Um, it's an incredibly underutilized uh, portion of the plate. If you're thinking about, you know, how many years, how many meals you eat in a year, how much of that is seafood? It's healthier. 
Um, mm-hmm. It contains a lot of the essential nutrients for life. And so we think that we're well positioned uh, from a menu standpoint to appeal to a lot of people. Um, we didn't open Shark and Shack to be trendy. It was never that. Um, it just happens to be we're in a we're in a trendy um, we're in a trendy trendy subset of the restaurant industry right now. Uh, and so there's a lot of things at play when we're talking about recruiting franchise partners into our system. And even on the business to consumer side, which is you're in a growing industry, the seafood is a multi-billion dollar industry. And the most important differentiating factor in that is that a majority of the seafood that is consumed in the U S is consumed in restaurants. Mm-hmm. People don't typically cook seafood at home. And if they do, it's a special occasion. So it's unlike burgers or steaks or tacos or things like that, where, man, I'll go home tonight and throw a burger on the grill 20 minutes after pulling in the driveway. You can do that with seafood, but most people don't. And so we know that we have capitalized on that market and being a trustworthy source of of those products. And then on top of that, you add the bar and it's a win-win for us. We're a full service bar, cold beer, uh, cocktails, and, you know, that that all of that culminates into an entire authentic coastal experience where i mean you feel like you're on the carolina coast um or the outer banks of the virginia coast or you know on the gulf coast that that's what we're selling it, it's more than just oysters yeah i love that um one thing that usually throws red flags up for me or not red flags but yellow flags something to be uh, leery of is is the supply chain issues that go along with it so oysters uh can be very regional um, there's different flavors if you get, for instance, Connecticut or, or Massachusetts oysters versus Virginia versus, you know, even further south. Um, how, how do you, one, how have you been able to secure top-notch oysters? Because a bad oyster is really bad. Uh, really from bad. unit yeah. to unit. <laughs> and and how, what are some of those challenges and, and how have you all overcome it? Sure. So I think on the supply chain side, we've been very fortunate in that we have a, a really wide range of oysters that we sell. We have a fairly wide range of sourcing. Virginia, for instance, is the largest oyster producer in the East Coast United States. We can get oysters to our entire footprint out of Virginia without any interruption whatsoever. Um, Virginia produces oysters 365 days a year. And because they're aquacultured oysters, which is where the industry has moved, um, there's time temperature control. Uh, you know, they're put into refrigeration immediately upon harvest. They're graded. Um, those that don't pass the grade as far as sizing is concerned to return to the water so they become healthier oysters over time and so we have worked the supply chain is more difficult on seafood it's it's simply put but because we've been in the industry longer um, and because we're uh, providing that to our franchise partners coming on it, it's a lot more advantageous position for us we're, we're experts in the industry we have become de facto Uh, seafood supply chain experts. And so on the oyster side, we can consistently get product across our entire footprint because we do have trusted suppliers um, in Virginia, in the Gulf, in the Northeast. And then we work with several uh, very, very large broadline support suppliers uh, on the seafood side. So, you know, the the critical component of oysters is, is temperature. That's the big thing. Once they come out of the water, they need to be temperature controlled. And so we have all verified suppliers. Every oyster source that we have is tagged and official. Um, and so it's a trustworthy source that can be uh, sourced 365 days a year. And it's put on a truck and delivered to, to our restaurants within a couple of days of harvest because it has to be. An oyster shelf life is 
technically about two weeks, uh, mm-hmm. but we try to serve them within the first week of harvest um, because that's when they're best. Um, and we don't let them sit around. You know, our par levels are lower in the restaurants. Um, and so we keep fresh product on hand, but we also blow through it pretty quickly. Yeah. One of, one of the issues uh, when you get into franchising, though, is, is corralling those franchisees as much as we love them. They can be difficult, especially because they have invested their own money. They're entrepreneurs as a result. Uh, and so when they see slippage or if they see an opportunity to do something cheaper, they love to dive at that. And I, I think when it comes to specifically this PMIX, that can be quite dangerous. Um, how, how are you with, I hate to use the word, but policing those franchisees, yeah. making sure that they've bought in, making sure that they are adhering to standard and making sure that they are, um, you know, not getting people sick, which is easily done when seafood turns. Um, Sure. Yeah. So there's three components to it. I I think the first component is the integrity of the product. Number one, we're serving, like I said before, wild-caught American product. Most, you know, 90 plus percent of what we serve is sourced domestically. And so it's coming out of waters that are trusted and more regulated. We're not pulling product from Asia, which is another huge seafood source uh, where there's less regulation. There's a little bit less trust on the product coming over. Um, Yes, there is some regulatory compliance, but it's nothing like what's happening here in the U.S. as far as pulling product is concerned. It's very similar to the beef market in that concern in that, you know, if you're sourcing beef, a certain cut of beef, you're sourcing from different parts of the country, it's very regulated. Um, There's a lot of hoops that the suppliers and the harvesters, for instance, our oystermen and fisher, uh, fish, fishers have to have to um, jump through. Uh, there's a lot of regulations that they have to to go through. We also are verifying that on the back end to verify the integrity of the product. We work with a supply chain management company, and so whenever we pursue new product or we go for, let's say, you know, once a year we buy shrimp, we do case commitments on shrimp. So when we go for that, we know the exact spec of the product that we're looking for. We do case commitments of, you know, several, several thousand cases. And then we're passing that savings along to our franchisees. And quite frankly, going back to the integrity of the product, if you taste the wild-caught American shrimp versus something sourced from a farmed shrimp in Asia, there's a humongous taste difference. And so our customer base 100% depends upon that integrity of the product. Um, The second part is training. Um, The training of our franchisees, and we actually will take them through that. This is why we source products from here and not here. This is how you can source products from here and not here. Um, You know, as far as oysters are concerned, it's a little bit wider net. So we allow our franchisees some leeway in that uh, because people, you know, in Texas and Florida, they want Gulf oysters. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, they'll eat Virginia oysters, and that's still a big part of what we're doing. However, in those states and along the Gulf, they want the much larger, you know, um, kind of clustered oysters. And so we'll serve that seasonally. So we allow our franchisees some lanes of operation. Um, that, and that's really, really important that, that we do that because, to your point, it's less of a policing atmosphere within our brand. We want you to operate within these lanes of operation. We're giving you choices in how you can operate within those lanes. We're not telling you you have to order this, have to order and source this oyster and this oyster only. We're saying, hey, if, if, as long as those oysters are tagged and from a um, you know a verified safe source, then serve it. And if your customers are coming to you and saying, hey, you know, I really want blue points or I really want Duxberries or I really want this, this or that, then find it. And we can help you find those sources on all of those things. And so we give our franchisees some of that leeway. And then the last thing is pricing. So integrity, 
um, training and then pricing on it. We're doing a lot of uh, buying ahead of time. So when we're talking about shrimp, we're talking about crab legs, we're talking about crab. We're doing a lot of those. We're doing a lot of those buys on the franchisor side ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And our franchisees are ultimately the ones that benefit from that because we have consistent pricing throughout the year on most of those center of the plate items. That's wonderful. Yeah. And so the, like you said earlier, the, um, and just here a second ago, uh, it's more than oysters. Obviously there, there's a full P mix here sure. that is seafood centered. Um, but that doesn't travel very well. So a lot of this industry, one of the things that we've been seeing with concept to concept is this huge shift towards delivery. It was fueled by the pandemic, but I think it was always going to come down the pike anyway, just, um, as, as consumer behaviors, uh, shift. Um, how do you ensure that, the Shuck and Shack product maintains um, its fortitude and and its deliciousness in a delivery scenario because obviously seafood is can be very fickle, like French fries. I mean, even French fries are quite fickle when they get delivered. Um, That's right. You know, it's yeah, you know, French fries you kind of have to eat immediately or else they just get soggy, right. limp, and weird. Get soggy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So how how do you I, I tackle think that? Our, um, we, you know, it's a very unpopular choice that we've made, which is we aren't doing a lot of delivery um, mm-hmm. because we don't have to. Our our customer base, we have doubled down on the customer experience and we have doubled down on being the trusted source of seafood. We believe that our customers will pull up to our restaurants if they want our food and they have consistently proven that they will do that. I, I think a part of that is there's not a natural association that Shuck and Shack is all about convenience. Uh, because it's not. We're not going to compete with pizza. We're not going to compete with Chinese food delivery. We're not going to compete yeah. with those things. You know, you look at, you know, all praise to Domino's. They're a technology company in pizza clothing, right? Yep. They they have mastered how to get you a hot pizza very, very quickly. Um, the same thing with with Chinese, Chinese delivery. It's always been quick. Quick. It's been quick since I was in college. Um, nothing has changed there. You order, you know, Mandarin chicken and it's at your house in 35 minutes and it mm-hmm. tastes the exact same because they've got all those things figured out and because their product um, is based in things that travel a little bit better. We know on the seafood side, seafood typically um, you want to eat it right when it comes off the grill or right when it comes out of the steamer or right when it hits that food window. And so what we, we've tried to educate our customer base on that, number one and saying, hey, this is why we don't do some of delivery. Uh, because if you get mad at our product, you're very going to get rarely going to get mad at one of the delivery options. You're going to get mad at us and say That's our right. food wasn't any good. What we're telling you is our food's really good. You just got to come pick it up. Yep. And so in COVID, that was a little bit against the grain. Um, it, it really was. We were one of the few places, at least national brands, that we just did not advertise delivery. Certainly, we allowed And we encouraged individual franchisees, if they wanted to pursue that route, we would help them. And we did help them in doing so. Uh, But most of our marketing was focused around to go curbside, come get it, get your chance to escape from the house. Um, You know, back when we were on mega lockdown in different states, one of the approved reasons you could leave was to get food. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that we doubled down on the marketing side. And then furthermore, we kept in touch with our customers and saying, when you choose to come back out and dine, these are the things that we're doing within our restaurants so you can dine with us safely. And so we really, really, it was a hard decision. Um, and it, it was fairly, I'm not going to say it was unpopular in our system. It was not. Our franchisees were in lockstep with us on that and saying, "That's great." hey, um, we know exactly what you're saying. You're absolutely right. You know, 
seafood doesn't travel all that well. A few menu items do, but for the most part, it doesn't travel all that well. So we're going to dump dollars on the marketing side and saying, meet us at the curb. We'll meet you there. Come get it to go. It's going to taste better. Um, so that's what we did. And, and that's what's worked for us. I love it. So, you know, I think um, when you get to beach town concepts, um, they can almost be uh, elusive in their actual success. So what I mean by that Mm is, boom, I open up a seaside shack, I'm banging it out, I'm making numbers, but now I want to grow. And all of a sudden, we start getting inland. Uh, that seafood shack uh, feel just doesn't seem to play all the time. It seems to start to get diluted down. Um, how how have you managed that growth? Because you've, you've gone inland. You've also gone down the coast yeah. of it, too. Um, what does that look like? I mean, do you see good traction inland versus coastal? Or is coastal still the best, uh, the best format and, and location for you? You know, I thought the same thing when we first started growing. I thought, hey, we're looking at the coast. It's a natural fit. You don't have to create the cool vibe in a seafood shack on the coast. Um, People are going to naturally associate coming to the beach or, you know, spending a few days uh, close to the water with seafood. That's fish in a barrel for us, so to speak, pun intended. (laughs) But we've actually seen there's there's an equal success rate from our inland locations as there is our coastal locations. And what we used to talk about a lot, we haven't talked about it recently as much, but we want to eliminate that pilgrimage to the coast for people. And that's exactly what we're doing. Two of our top five locations are more than two hours from the coast. Hmm. And so we are, you know, they're successful because they're recreating that coastal atmosphere and but they're not at the beach. You know, we're talking about folks who might come to the beach once or twice a year. Maybe they have a second home at the beach and they come in the shoulder season. But we are we are transplanting that coastal experience um, inland, and we've been we've been very very fortunate with it, and we've been very good at it. And people visit our restaurants because they say, "No, let's not ride an hour and a half for seafood and spend the night. Let's just go to Shark and Shack." That that's that's what we've been successful at doing, and so you know, I, I think our future is inland. Um, yeah. Number one, on a business strategy standpoint, there's less competition. Nobody's mm-hmm. doing what we're doing inland. Uh, there's plenty of great, I mean, right here in Wilmington, for instance, there are tons of great seafood restaurants. I mean, top-notch seafood restaurants. You go five hours inland, that's not always the case. Right. And so it's less competition for us. Um, it's more advantageous to transplant our product and the integrity of our product Um inside um inside the country yeah that's awesome i mean one of the other things that i i really noticed and and what made me want to reach out to is your dedication to retaining staff and how you treat the staff and uh, that's one of the other you know deliveries one thing and then uh the staff issues are storied at this point and we're still struggling um what, what have been some of your secrets to empowering the team to grow thrive stay with the brand and then and then how do you uh indoctrinate that within the franchisee system so they can do the same? You know, I I think it all boils down to a couple of different factors on our side. Number one, and I said this from the beginning, uh, whenever, you know, the great resignation happened and everyone was talking about $15 minimum wage and raising pay, it is not just about pay. You have to treat people well. Um, and you have to treat people exceptionally well. And that has to extend beyond the people walking through your doors as customers. That has to extend to your staff. And a big part of that is, are you talking to your staff? Or is it or is it a A to B directed conversation where you're the captain and they're the private and you're telling them what to do? 
or are you actually having conversations with them like they're real people? Because, you know, last I checked, they were. We haven't replaced our restaurants with robotics. We don't have any intention of doing so. We believe that people make the best additives to every to all four walls in the restaurant space. So are you actually talking to people? And that was our biggest step when, you know, when we're talking about the great resignation and a lot of the um, hiring challenges and staffing challenges is talk to them. What mm-hmm. do they need? Let's talk about needs. Let's talk about monetary needs. Let's talk about non-monetary needs. Um, you know, are you considering leaving the restaurant industry because you don't get paid time off? Because that doesn't happen unless you're on the management level. Okay, then let's change it. And so right. that's one of the things that we took a really, really hard look at from 2020 to 2021 was what are some of the soft skill and qualitative things that we can do to improve our staffing retention. And we did that. We, we cut down on our turnover by 38%. Ooh, um, and it's amazing where, where everyone else was headed in the opposite direction. You know, we, we haven't stabilized system wide. That's that's, that would be an overstatement. We're still challenged in several markets, but we, what we are training and teaching our franchise owners is you need to be having these conversations. Of course, you've got to raise pay and you're going to raise pay and you have raised pay. Our pay is up system wide significantly. Mm -hmm. However, everything outside of that, that you also need to be talking about. And it's that simple. Um, And, and we've had a lot of success with that. Yeah, I think it also is the atmosphere that you've created there um, outside of everything you just mentioned. But uh, some places just suck to like work at. (laughs) (laughs) And I've worked in some of those places that suck to work at. Like you wake up in the morning or even if you have a late shift and you just put it off and put it off and put it off and you think, I do not want to go to work today because I don't want to do you know, I feel like I'm working my tail off. I don't want to do everything they're telling me to do because I think it's stupid and it can be done way more efficiently, or I don't want to become this person. I don't want to put on this facade that uh, it's not really me. We, that has been one of the things that we've done from the beginning in that we're kind of throwing out this idea that you have to homogenize everyone into this same, you know, sentient being in, yep. in saying, Hey, you know, Joseph, your person at you, you told me in your interview that your strengths were X, Y, and Z. We're going to throw all of that out. And we want you to be exactly this when you, when you walk into these doors, you know, for me, um, I won't use a four letter word, but no, screw that. We're not doing that. Um, we're taking exactly what you said as your strengths and we're going to maximize on your strengths because we want you to be you. Um, if you and I were, were, you know, bartenders or servers, you know, we are very, very end goal focused. So the end goal is to treat your, your guests exceptionally well. You might be a great joke teller. I might not be. That doesn't mean that we can't have that same end goal. And so yeah. we're asking our servers, our bartenders, our kitchen staff, everyone that has contact with the customer base in their restaurant, be yourself. Mm-hmm. Be yourself. Now, we want you to show up and be in a good mood and all of those things. And, and it's sometimes you have to put whatever's going on in your personal life behind you so that you can make money. That's why you work, so that you can pay for the things that you need to buy. Um, however, we want you to be yourself. Um, and if you're having a bad day, tell us and we'll figure it out. Um, but we're not asking you to do a shirt and spiel. We're not asking you to say welcome to Shuck and Shack to everyone that walks through the door. No one gives a rip. Um, you know, they know where they are. They don't need to be reminded of the name of the business that they're coming into. They know exactly where they walked into. And so tell them to sit down, tell them to have a good time, you know, tell a joke, be charming, uh, be personable, uh, just be a human being. 
Um, and that's what we're asking people to do. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, when we get out of the full service uh, restaurant side of things, we start looking at QSRs. It's it, it's almost heartbreaking to see what happens there. And what I mean by that is you get someone in the door and then talk about homogenization. You throw them in the same <laughs> uniform, you put the hat on and the apron, and now you will do the things. And, and the stuff doesn't even look cool. And I know that sounds so trivial, but it's not. I mean, they say that you, you dress for the job that you want. Okay, well, I'm sure that people realize they're starting out, but they don't want to be there in five years or 10 years. So, But you're putting them in these outfits that they would never wear on their own, and you're saying that it's a branded right. thing. I, I think brands would do well to actually ask the question, like, is this cool? Like, is this something that people would want to wear? And if the mm -hmm. answer is no, then why would they even want to work there besides the paycheck? And and I've seen so many brands like that. Um you know, Chick-fil-A, let's take, for instance, they're very buttoned up, but people buy into that when they work there. They know why they're there. They are in the service industry and they are there exactly to right. serve, you know, and that's that's great. But, you know, you talk about I'm just I'm trying to think of an example without ruffling too many feathers. But, um, you know, you look at like the thing down the streets like they t-shirt logo on the front logo's janky it looks weird it's not even something representative of my personality and then you put me in a stupid hat that i would never wear either um <laughs> and you expect people to be happy to work there um so i think it would make a lot of sense just to ask people like hey are you on the trucker hats because i think they look cool right and they may say no that's like that's old dude don't do that that's like, right. you know um you're speaking my language man i, I just don't I don't necessarily have, you know, my first thought in, in brand building and, and bringing in people into your brand, which make no mistake about it. You may have a great brand uh, from a from a culinary standpoint. You may have great products and great ideas um, and have the best, uh, you know, all the technology pieces on earth and give people access to those things. But if you don't have great people in your four walls, none of it matters. Not one bit. You will close and you will fail. Yep. Um, and, and we just believe so strongly in that. And we ask ourselves internal questions like, would I want to wear a polo shirt with my name on it um, and a hat that doesn't fit my head uh, for the next eight hours? Oh, and by the way, let's do that five days a week uh, for right. the next 52 weeks. Um, no, I don't want to. So I'm not going to make my employees do it. Um, yep. It's not. It It is so it is so bewildering to me when going back to the interview process, like, what is the point? If you want a robot, just have a check mark that says, are you willing to be a robot? And if yeah. you check, yes, hey, welcome. Here's your or, or at this point, just get a robot. Because they're or out just, yeah, At this yeah. point, which some brands have moved into and been successful with, just get a robot. Yeah. Um, but we are not looking for that. We are we believe that people bring color to photographs, right? That's that's what we're after. Um, and it's it is experiential. Um, you know, we are not in the business, and, and many Q, QSRs have been exceptionally, exceptionally um, successful, uh, profitable, you know, have done amazing numbers, and we'll continue to do those things. But the reason you visit a QSR is because it's in their name. It's quick service. They're after quick service. It's a transactional relationship. For us, it's very different. We're, we are full service and, and full meaning we're going to come to your table. We're going to take your order. You know, we're going to offer you a bar atmosphere. You're going to leave feeling like you got fully serviced. And so for us, we've we've taken that to heart. We, we just don't have it's not in our brand DNA to turn people into robots. And, and that's yeah. just not our way forward.
That's awesome. So what what's next for Shuck and Shack? What's on a, on the horizon? Uh, or at least what you, what can you share? <laughs> sure. So we're going to open a few more restaurants this year. Um, you know, we just want to open healthy units. You see, you see a lot of brands out there and rightfully so they advertise. We've got, we've sold a million or we've sold 300 uh, units. We've got franchise agreements in 46 States. And well, how many do you actually get open? Cause that's what counts. That's right. Um, you know, what you have in your pipeline is, is great for, for private equity and people coming after you, but what you actually open is great for your actual profitability. Um, you know, you're, you're not, you're not selling yourselves on what's to come. You're selling yourselves on what you have. And so, um, for us, we just want to open healthy units. That's it. Um, single unit, multi-unit, you know, owner operators, multi-unit investors or multi-unit operators. Uh, we still accept both into our system. Uh, we award franchises to both and we turn down people. Um, we don't feel like they're a great brand fit. Uh, we just say, Hey, look, we think you're going to be an excellent franchisee of another system. Um, yeah. And we kind of leave it at that. And so on the horizon for us, we'll open to several more units this year. Um, the number, I'm not exactly sure because we got construction delays because of supply chain and equipment and all of those things, yeah. just like everyone else. It'll be between three and six um, from now until the end of the year. Um, it just depends on permitting and all of those delays that we talked about. But outside of that, uh, we're awarding territories um, and awarding franchise agreements uh, with 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 good folks that's what we want to bring into our organization we want to bring good people into our organization uh, because we don't believe you can run a good restaurant if you're not a good person and so that's what we're after i love that so this is probably the toughest uh question of the entire interview um okay. if you had one final meal to eat what would you eat where would you eat <laughs> why would you eat it <laughs> oh um so the mail-in answer, and because I'm not going to be able to pick anything better, the, you know, outside of the experience that I described in my first story and how I got connected with Shuck and Shack, the very first menu item I ever had with Shuck and Shack was the lobster roll. Oh, wow. So if I knew if I knew my time was ticking, uh, that's probably what I would go back to. I would go back to the Gregor lobster roll, French fries, um, coleslaw, uh, and probably a sweet tea. And that would be uh, that would be my final meal. And I'd be happy going out with lobster in my belly, I think. I love it, man. That's amazing. Yeah. Hey, thanks yeah. for taking time out and sharing so much, man. This was absolutely great to get a peek behind the curtain. Um, when I'm up in Carolina Beach again, which will not be too long from now, um, I will hit you up and we will have to Look, yeah, please do, share man. one of those uh, lobster rolls. Yeah, please do. All right, man. Have a good one. Cheers. Yeah, thanks, Toby. If you love what we served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC, all rights reserved.